Great. Today's reading is from Ephesians 4, uh, verses 17 to 24. That's on page 1175 of the Church Bibles, on the right. Again, Ephesians 4, verses 17 to 24. So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality and as to, so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him according with the truth that is in Jesus. Sorry, in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught, with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God, in true righteousness and holiness. Good morning to you all. Good. Well, this morning we're picking up again the Culture Matter series, and we've been looking in the series at some of the culture values all around us that challenge us as believers. A culture value is an idea of the world that culture imposes on reality, and they get stuck to culture in all sorts of ways. And they're in the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 10, that's where we started this series, these culture values, many of them are set up against the knowledge of God. And Paul says they're pretensions, they're counterfeits of what's true. But they're very, very powerful, very, very influential. And if we don't understand them and engage with them and actually resist them, we lose our distinctiveness which in the language of the New Testament is to become worldly. We just blend in with the culture values that are all around us. Now, a few weeks ago, we looked at the critical culture value of self-belief. And this morning, we're going to look at the culture value of hedonism. Hedonism. So what is hedonism? Well... Basically, it's to live for the pursuit of pleasure. Which means if it feels good, do it. Now we need to clarify something here. This pursuit of pleasure is a particular kind of pleasure. It's the kind of pleasure directly tied to our bodies. It's important for us to appreciate that there's a class of desire which is biological. We have different classes we function in, but this is the most basic one, biological desire. In the past, Christian thinkers and theologians called these appetites, hungers. Some called them passions, reflecting the desire side. And the thing about our appetites tied to our bodies is that you can't turn them off. They're constantly going and moving and orienting us. 
So if you've got a rumbly tumbly, say at three o'clock in the afternoon, your body is telling you it's snack time. And at that point, I love to reach for Cadbury's milk chocolate, finest of chocolate, I believe. And I take a little piece, and a wave of pleasure just sweeps over me. And a smile comes to my face. Or you might be someone at 11 o'clock, you're overcome with a feeling of weariness. I'm so weary. And you quickly go out and you buy yourself a flat white, whatever that is. And you have your flat white, and a flood of pleasure engulfs you, and you perk up. Most days I work down at the round church on a very uncomfortable pew, and as I walk home, my body feels achy and tired. When I come through the door, if it's what I should be doing, I say, hello, Helen, and then I sink into my Norwegian stressless recliner the most comfortable chair ever made. And it's just a (sighs) of comfort and pleasure engulfs me. Of course, the most potent bodily appetite humans possess is the sexual one. This is a very strong desire and a very strong pleasure source. So see, these are some of the things that make up our appetites. Now here you need to hear me loud and clear. This needs to come through when I say that there's nothing inherently wrong with any of these pleasures and the desires that they're connected to within our bodies. Some Christians have dealt with this matter very unhelpfully and you listen to them and you think, the one who invented the body's pleasure must be the devil. Well, as Lewis reminds us often, pleasure is not the devil's invention. He loves misery. All pleasures in creation were originally given by God. And he's not a miserable being. He's the happiest being there is. And he longs for us to share in his happiness. And part of that is the pleasures of the body that he's designed us with. And that's why Paul writes in verse 1 Timothy 6 about the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Isn't that beautiful? He gives us richly all things to enjoy. So what then about the pleasures of the body? Where does it go wrong? Well, it becomes a problem when it defines what our life is for, what we're to be oriented to. And that's exactly what hedonism is. Here's where this culture value shows up, and we have to be aware of it, because it's so strong today. There's a popular motto you hear if your ears are open. It was also the title of a best-selling book. Live what you love. Live what you love. And it's basically something we can't help doing. Whatever defines our first and primary love is what we're going to live for. So if your first love is the pleasure that's delivered to and by your body, that is what you're going to live for, if it's your first love. And the culture value of hedonism promotes this. In fact, we belong today to a culture that has this on steroids. 
Now, the pretension, the counterfeit in this particular culture value is simply the disordering of our loves. Our loves get put in the wrong place. So the pleasure of an excellent meal, the pleasure of sexual intimacy, the pleasure of warm sun on your skin as you're laid out on a sandy beach is not wrong in and of itself. What's wrong is if this is what your life is for. The living what you love is the top priority in terms of these things. Now there's an advantage for us on one hand with hedonism in terms of a culture value. Most culture values are rather hidden. This one is in our face. We're just blitzed and bombarded with the message, this is what your life is for. It saturates our culture today in a way it didn't 30, 40 years ago. So this live for your pleasure as your first love is constantly communicated to us. It's drip-feeding through everything. It's summed up perfectly in four letters. Y-O-L-O. You only live once, so have a blast. Make the most of it in terms of your pursuit of the good life, which is pleasure. So let me play you right now 30 seconds of the kind of advert you see over and over. Fragrance for men by Dior. Oh, that's what it's promoting. Men's fragrance. No, it's not. That's promoting a hedonistic lifestyle. And it just keeps coming through. That's the point. That's what it's endorsing. And it's tying its product to this first love. So the culture value of hedonism reduces all of life to that. Which means... Pretty much everything is sexualized, as we saw there. And I'm going to invent two words here. Everything is also foodized. And everything is also comfortized. Because these are what life is for. None of them wrong in and of themselves, but they become the chief end. Now you might think, because this is so in our faces today, we have the advantage. As Christians, we can see through it. But I'm not sure we can. And the reason for that is because this promotion, this kind of endorsement, is very seductive. Almost irresistible. Because all of us, unless we're in a bad place, sometimes this happens, but I would say all of us, Love pleasure. You love the flat white. I love my stressless chair. And I love chocolate. So anything that traffics pleasure as the main thing is bound to be extremely seductive. And the great thing about the pleasure that hedonism promotes is that it's very easily satisfied. 
It doesn't take much effort. If you're thirsty or tired, go buy the flat white. If you're sexually frustrated, just turn on the computer and start trawling. It's easy. So for us as Christians, saturated in this, it's a challenge not to be conditioned by this cultural value, which just overwhelms us. So how are we going to remain, retain our distinctiveness in the face of this culture value? Well, I can't think of a better passage to help us with, with this than the one we heard read a moment ago. Ephesians 4, 17 forward. Open it up if you have your Bibles. And what we're going to do is just follow Paul's line of argumentation and firstly look at the way of the hedonist. When he talks about the Gentile, by the way, you're going to see in a moment, he's just talking about hedonism. And then the way of Christ. So, the way of the hedonist. Here's where he starts. He begins it here. He engages with this issue. So I tell you this, he says, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They're darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. Now, this is a rather remarkable diagnosis of the hedonist cultural condition. And we should pick up from this that ours is not the first culture to go hedonist. When Paul talks about the Gentiles in verse 17, he's referring to the Romans. And if there are any historians here, they'll back it up. There's plenty on record to show that first century Romans were hedonistic, probably beyond what we are today. So the early Christians are saturated in hedonism. That's what Paul's addressing here. Did you know in the first century that Rome had celebrity chefs. not that amazing? Helen and I were recently out in public in the south of England. We just saw Gordon Ramsay walk by. And suddenly there were lots of girls and young men screaming. What's going on? This is what a celebrity chef attracts. It was rather news to me. Rome had them too, apparently. So Paul in these verses is going to help us see how this culture value shows up so we can discern it. The first thing is that it functions almost purely in sensual indulgence. Let's have a photo here. This is maybe my image of sensual indulgence. There it is. We're back to the chocolate. You don't have to be a saint to have a halo. Mmm. Makes me hungry. I'm going to turn, my, turn around. Now, I want you to note the words that Paul uses here. He talks about being given over to sensuality, given over to it. So the hedonist lives what they love by making the sensual, the appetites, the priority. It's all about gratifying your hungers, your biological hungers. And given over means that this is what leads you, what orients you through life. Then later in verse 19, Paul uses the word indulge with a continual lust for more. 
You just can't get enough of the kind of pleasure that hedonism has on offer. So you're greedy for more, constantly. Now, if you're given over to this as your first choice, there's nothing in your world that's going to resist the bodily craving. And when a whole culture begins to live like that, it spirals into a downgrade. I'm taken by the argument of several notable historians. One was a sociologist that says the last phase of every great civilization has been the sensate phase. When hedonism has ruled, at that point, the lights are beginning to go out on Babylon, on Persia, on Rome, and maybe today on modernity. It's not good when a culture becomes completely hedonistic. This is what Paul's describing. Now, one of the reasons it's not good for a culture is that when you live like this, your life descends to the plane of the animal. If you want to see a model of sensual indulgence, come and visit the fellows. Not me, although I'm prone to it. It's our cat. We have a three-legged cat, really, called Biscotti. She's a sweetheart. Actually, when she got three legs, we started to call her Tri-Scotty. That's another story. Scotty lives for what she loves. And what does she love? Food. Every morning, she loudly tells me what she wants. I give it to her, and momentarily, her sensual indulgence is satisfied. But then what does she do? She goes and looks for the warmest spot in the house. Nearest radiator, a little bit of sun coming through the window. And then she gets comfortable, and she just goes into her snooze. And then she comes to us, we're sitting down, begging us for some physical touch. Touch me. She is the model of sensual indulgence. We love her, but that's what she's a model of. When sensual indulgence is our chief aim, we begin to live like animals. And as believers, we know we're made for more of that. And that leads to the the second point. The second way hedonism shows itself, works itself out, is in spiritual numbness. That's what it leads to. If it's our first love, something happens in our internal life. And we become degraded. Notice the words and phrases that Paul uses. The futility, the emptiness of thought, of our mental life. A darkened understanding. He talks about the ignorance that's in us if we're hedonists. And he talks about a hardening of the heart. And for me, the striking phrase is this one. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality. The loss of sensitivity. Hedonism leads to this. Our inner capacities, which were made for the the sensual world, but for much more, become closed down, and the world becomes very flat. All of reality is defined by what gives me pleasure in my body. It's a reduction, and it's a degradation. We become desensitized internally. Now, the point Paul's stressing here is its impact on deep thinking. Humans are given mental capacities, but no, it becomes futile now. There's a darkening in terms of understanding. 
And if we had time, we could trace out how hedonistic civilizations in the past became culturally irrational. It's always an outcome of hedonism. More body pleasure, that becomes a chief aim, irrationality. Paul's describing it right here. It's exactly what was happening in Rome in the first century. When living for pleasure is to live what you love, it lowers your horizon. I know someone well. We got on marvelously. He's not a believer, and he's a classic hedonist. Incredibly successful in terms of making money and highly intelligent. And we start talking, and after a while he says, Whoa, Andrew, stop making me think. It's dangerous to think. I don't want to go there. Why, I say? He says, It's way too dangerous. I'd have to give up the life I love. I want to keep it simple. This is what I live for. Don't make me think. He's honest. Now, if we as Christians give in to this tidal wave, this cultural value tidal wave that hits us all the time, it's going to deeply impact us. We really are going to become worldly. Our world is going to shrink. The horizons are going to become very flat. And I say this to myself too, I wonder where the modern church is, the contemporary church, with respect to a sense of eternity. I know several who are saying, Andrew, it seems to be missing, disappearing. Well, that would be a direct outcome of being a hedonist. This is a really dangerous cultural value. We've got to wrestle with it. What we're doing this morning is only the beginning of it. I think it's one of the great things, great challenges we face. So what are we going to do? This is the world we live in. We're bombarded by this irresistible message. What can we do? Well, if you were here for my, the first of my talk, I quoted C.S. Lewis, who said, we require as believers the stronger spell to wake us up from the evil enchantment of the world. We need a stronger spell, a stronger spell than the hedonist one. So what is that? Well, this leads to my second point, which is the way of Christ. The way of Christ. Listen to me as I read these verses. That, however, Paul says, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life, the hedonist one, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted in its deceitful desire, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds. You're getting your sensitivity back. And to put on the new self, which is created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So the first part of the passage, we hear the word of the hedonist, the culture value. You have heard that it was said that to live what you love is to live for pleasure. And now we hear the word of Christ. He says, but I say to you, there's a better way. There's a higher way. And that's the one you're called to. So here comes the word of Christ in scripture to challenge the deceit. And the challenge is that you as a believer have been given a new orientation. So we don't have to live like the hedonists do. And Paul's pointing us to the new orientation. And basically it's one where our loves have been reordered. Hedonism disorders the loves. The way of Christ reorders them. 
So now it's properly ordered in the right place. So where the old orientation in the hedonistic deceit is the body's pleasure is the first love, the new one says Christ is our first love. The American Puritan, Jonathan Edwards, had a great phrase for this. It can't be beat. He talks about the expulsive power of a new affection. That's brilliant. Expulsive power in terms of that's not the main thing. The new affection to Christ is. And when Christ becomes the center, the other one is put in its proper place. That's the elevation of our desires. Now when that happens, it doesn't mean that we all have to run off and go to a monastery. Be terrible if there's no one here next week because you all join the monastery, wearing hair shirts, eating terrible food, and praying for 20 hours a day. That's not what Paul's saying here. It's not how it works. It's all about the reorientation that Christ gives us. So he's first. And that then frees us to enjoy his pleasures. And he sends many of them our way. I notice it's a very gloomy day, so here's a bit of envy talk. Helen and I just this week got back from Greece. Wow. Lots of sun, wonderful sand, amazing Greek food, and the delights of all these historic sites. Just blew our minds, our hearts. We felt very good. My wife especially. I heard her say a hundred times and more, thank you, Lord. Thank you. First in our affections, you can receive it as the gift, the pleasure that he gives us. And you enjoy them more. Lewis gets at this wonderfully in this sentence. He writes to a friend and he says, put first things first and we get second things thrown in. Love that. Put second things first, and we lose both the first and the second things. We don't even get the sensual power of food at its best when we're being greedy. When Christ is first in our affection, food tastes great. The joy of our intimacies together are wonderfully pleasurable. And Paul is reminding us here that This is being reordered. Now, this reordering is not our work, which is why he uses the language of creation. God has created you to be a new person. So there's three things he says about this better way in Christ. First of all, we have an elevated identity because we've been created by God for something higher, something better. And he says the purpose for which this is is aimed is to be like God. In true righteousness and holiness. We've been created to be like God, which means to share in his pleasure. You can't go higher than that. If you want joy, that's the problem. Who said it? Chesterton? Our problem isn't that we desire too much. We desire way too little. This is the joy we're called to in our new orientation with our elevated identity. We are in Christ. Secondly, he talks about having elevated thoughts. No more of this desensitization internally operating on the animal level. We've been made new in the attitude of our minds. So unlike the hedonists who's lost this sensitivity in their thought life, we're steeped in truth as it is in Christ. 
Our minds become captive to his beautiful mind. And it makes all the difference. And I'll tell you this, if it's true that a hedonistic culture leads to irrationality, Christians in this moment should be rational beings. Not just rational, but we should know how to think well. And that'll make us stand out. You want to see irrationality, just listen to politicians. We have to go for good thinking. And that'll come in this new orientation. Our thoughts are elevated. And then thirdly, there's an elevated way of life. That's what he's talking about. The way of life of the hedonist and the way of life of the believer. And it's a way of life, Paul says, is learned. Verse 20. We've learned it from Christ. And that word learned is habit. It's become our habit. This way of Christ is reordering our loves. It's a struggle, but it's reordering our loves. So he is first in our affection. We're allowing his truth to saturate our minds on a day-to-day basis. Talking with Mark after the first one, we're practicing a bit of fasting, which may help us against hedonism. And as our minds are saturated with his truth, as we hear his confirmations of his love for us, as we begin to delight in him more, this reordering becomes our habit. And we become established in this better, more elevated way of life. Now that today is going to make us stand out. Just living like that is going to make us stand out from the prevailing hedonism. So it's a huge challenge we face. But in Christ, what we've been made in him, created in him, the habit that his Holy Spirit helps us form, we can live. Not like the Gentiles, the hedonists, but in the way of Christ. Let's finish by asking the Holy Spirit for his help in this. Lord, first we we acknowledge and confess to you that we are easily overwhelmed by this particular culture value, which is so seductive and in many respects seemingly irresistible. And we thank you for the radicality of your work in us. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us the courage day by day to practice habits that have you first in our affection, that our loves would be increasingly reordered. And we thank you that in doing that, that you grant us the pleasures. You help us to say thank you and to receive with gratitude all you give us day by day. So, Lord, train us in this, we pray, and make us distinctive as those who stand out. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.